Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Today, we're looking at the book of John, chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. Now, if you go to this, you're going to feel like you've just been dropped in the middle. And indeed, that is the case. So, Alan, why don't you explain where this fits within the context of John? Yeah, you know, part of the problem with um, the farewell discourse, which is the section of John's gospel we're in, is that, you know, it really, the whole thing is of a piece in many respects. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions is, how do you (laughs) divide it into separate scripture readings? And yet I think it's fair that it's important enough that to preach on it more than one week does make sense. It it's does. just it's just awkward as you enter it. So it is indeed, yeah. and and you know um, another another issue with the farewell discourse is there's a lot of repetition going on. Yeah, yeah. and but I think it's important for us to set John fourteen twenty nine twenty three to twenty nine in the context of the chapter as a whole because that's really the only way to make sense out of it in my opinion. I I, I agree. I agree, and it helps because when you dive right in, and then it's this thick language it's yeah. even in english it's just it's very theologically hard, loaded hard hard to get through yeah. um it helps when you go back to the beginning i, I think it can be discourse. confusing when you when you don't look at the chapter oh i as a agree whole. It, yeah. i agree it's it's i when i dumped in today i was like this is goopy until i had went back and i went back <laughs> goopy. I did, goopy that's a that's and, a great biblical term <laughs> yeah i know right i just was like uh and then oh it's john and then going back to the right. beginning of the discourse and then it all fought, makes sense but right. but it, you really have to do that right. so why don't you get started then with the beginning of this discussion. right so the chapter begins with jesus dialogue with the disciples and he's seeking to reassure them that he was going to prepare a place for them in his father's house so that where i am there you may be also now this is an important beginning place and we're going to see later on you know basically he's pointing forward to um uh, an eschatological hope here right something you know uh, associated with the paris parousia uh that's not quite the way that this chapter goes though and so we'll see how how that unfolds Mm -hmm. uh in in their immediate context this leads to the discussion of how they will know the way to this place Mm -hmm. and a request on the part of the disciples to show us the father jesus then engages in a dialogue with his own disciples that sounds a lot like the one we just looked at at john chapter 10 with the jewish leaders Mm -hmm. he reminds them that he's in the father and the father is in me and calls them to believe in this relationship he has with the father on the basis of the works that the father was doing in him you may recall when we looked at john chapter 10 he said if you don't to the jewish leaders believe on the basis of the works if you don't believe my word right right right. And um, so what, I, this is, again, this is that kind of thick language you're thinking about because it seems to imply there's some faith that's involved with this. I mean, well, and it, it, I think it's, I think some of the things that Jesus is telling them, they're really struggling to get. I think right. they're really having a hard time understanding what he's trying to tell them. Right. Well, I mean, so are we when we read it, right? right. I mean, when you think about it, right? So there's this idea that um, how, how do they 
how do these works work within their faith building? Exactly. I mean, I, I think yeah. that's the question. Well, and one result of their faith that Jesus describes is that they would glorify the Father by doing the works that Jesus was doing and even greater works. Mm-hmm. And part of what that looks like is that they love Jesus by keeping mm-hmm. his commands, especially the command to love one another. But part of what that looks like is that he will send the spirit of truth to help them accomplish Mm -hmm. this. More than that, I think Jesus promises his own presence as a way for them to know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. So, and this is going to, this is going to be, we're going to see this, you know, keeping the commands, the spirit and, and uh, right. Jesus' own presence, this is going to be throughout the farewell right. discourse. Right. This seems yeah. to me like this Trinitarian language that we're mm. dealing with. And, and mm. I, I think it's, I mean, it seems to me at least the Reformers are going to really look at this relationship between God sure. and Jesus and the Holy Spirit defined in this, in this chapter, yeah. actually. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, which is interesting to think about. Um, so, again, what... If, if we have to capsize this, what, what are the themes of this discourse? Well, essentially, those who love Jesus bear fruit in discipleship by obeying his command, and they do this with the aid of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what Jesus is saying to them. That this is how you're going to live out your discipleship. We right. saw this last year when we looked at John chapter 15. Um, and this leads then to the relationship of abiding that can be defined as those who love me will be loved by my father and I will reveal themself, myself to them mm-hmm. in John fourteen twenty one. Sure. More than that, as we've seen before, Jesus' own relationship of loving obedience toward the father is the pattern for G- the disciples' relationship with Jesus. And perhaps one of the clearest statements of that is found in John five nineteen. Mm. I mentioned this last year as well. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does mm-hmm. the son does likewise and that becomes a major theme as we've talked about several times in john's gospel jesus is only doing what right. he sees the father doing right which is actually really important for our the church and understanding mm-hmm. this broader theology of the church and how then we as as children of god are called into service too i think sure um, sure. and that is a nice setting for how this reflects on the precise Verses for today. Right. It does bring us to our lesson for today. And many of the themes in our lesson for today have been anticipated already in this chapter, and they will continue to be developed later in the farewell discourse, Mm -hmm. especially in John 15. Um, The lesson itself then constitutes the answer to a question in the preceding verse. Uh, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? That's the the Mm -hmm. question that sets up our passage. Right. The question itself seems to be a little out of place and that Jesus seems to ignore it and just goes on by elaborating on the topics that he had already raised. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we should pay attention to that just sense of disjointedness that we can feel when we read through the chapter. I don't, I don't think we should try to ignore that or just, just uh, you know, um, just kind of, what am I trying to cover over that? Um, well, it seems intentional by the editors, well, maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I do think it does reflect the hand of the editors. I think okay. we see the hand of the editors here. Okay, okay. Yeah. Now, um, you know, Jesus begins then with the statement that those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and he will come to them and make our Mm -hmm. home with them. That's John 14, 23. And again, um, um, you know, this seems to be more inconsistent with the ideas that Jesus is presenting overall in the farewell discourse. Um, the whole issue of, of why are you revealing yourself to us and not to the world isn't even addressed here. 
Right. Yeah. It's yeah. not. It's not. Um, and I will. I will mention just as a side note, as I mentioned, I think before this verse, John fourteen twenty three, those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we we will come to them and make our home with them. Is the inscription in the Brame Family Bible from eighteen fifty seven, and uh, I actually brought it to show Christy today. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's really it's really cool, and it's a, it's a really good one, and I think it in a way really emphasizes the 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 heart of this passage, Absolutely. which is love, which is Absolutely. love and, and yeah. what is love and, yeah. and how does that manifest itself in, and yeah. how we respond to God. Exactly. And so I think it's really central and yet it's really easy to get, I think, distracted from that main point. Well, you know, we're, we're so used to Pauline language and we're so used to the idea of we don't have to do anything for our salvation that we miss the fact that the New Testament is just as much a book of obedience as the Old Testament is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, every every New Testament writer just about quotes the the, the you know some at least some of the Ten Commandments, if not the Great mm-hmm. Commandments, and and emphasizes how important it is to keep those commandments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that's important here. The language of keeping a command is common to the Jahani literature and the gospel tradition as a whole, and it refers to obeying commands or observing teachings. I think about Matthew twenty eight twenty. You know, mm-hmm. you know, go <laughs> to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy. Spirit spirit teaching them to keep right what i have you know taught you basically mm-hmm. so that that language of keeping is something that's common mm-hmm. in the johanning mm-hmm. literature and the gospel tradition and it really does and really throughout the new testament there is an emphasis on um how faith is going to right. um, impact the way we live and it's going to make a difference in how we relate to god in terms of 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 following god's path and god's truth and god's way so this might sound like a kind that's of works righteousness, go, right? Right. I you mean, that's that, the that's the fear there, right? right? Those it's, who love me will keep my word. So uh, how how do you get the relationship right? Is it that you keep God's you keep Jesus' word in order to be loved by the Father, or is it that you keep His word because He has right. loved you? And right, I think, right. I, you know, I don't think it's some kind of works righteousness in which we have to somehow earn God's love for us. I would argue that it's more a matter of those who love Jesus truly will keep his word, not in order to be loved, but because they have encountered the love of Christ. Right, right. And Jesus promises that those who follow his example of loving God by obeying him will be enfolded then into the relationship of love that Jesus and the Father share. Right, right. So it's it's not so much about works righteousness or gaining love by what you do. It's more about this is how it works. You know, you encounter the love of Christ. That love changes your hearts. You want to live in the way that God instructs us to live. And you're enfolded then into that relationship of love that Jesus and the Father share. And that that makes sense. And I think that's really what we're going to see with um, at least the Reformed tradition folks. Uh, Unfortunately, I doubt... I, I seriously doubt that you could find a person in a church, even a Presbyterian church today, you know, just someone who's a member, even an elder who could articulate that kind of approach to, to salvation because we're so schooled in the Pauline tradition. We just don't well, absolutely. have that part as a part of our language of salvation. I, I, I think you're right, although I've heard it more recently mm. um, from pastors. And yeah. I think because, um, I, th- I, think, I think we're trying to in- incite people to live into their faith, right? right I mean, right. and... On the on the practical level of living, it it feels like we have to do something, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, on that day to day consciousness, even if that cause of that is from our our faith, I think 
we're still aware of that that action that we take, sure, if, if you sure. will. And, and I wasn't thinking here more so much about pastors in the churches as I was thinking about you know the members and the and and the people who yeah, haven't had uh, the benefit well, of seminary training. True, tr- true. That would that'd be an interesting poll, wouldn't it? Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. 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 So then the next verse might seem to answer the original question, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the word world? Because it says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but it is from the Father who sent me. I would argue, however, that this perspective reflects sort of the all-or-nothing thinking of the authors and editors of the final version of John's gospel rather than Jesus' perspective. The whole idea you know, it's that it's that you know you're either you're either light or darkness. You either love me or you hate mm-hmm. me. You're either a friend or an enemy. You know, there is no middle ground. And and we've seen some passages like John three seventeen through nineteen. After that beautiful statement about God so loved the world, you know, you've got right. you've got this whole and you know God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. But then you've got this whole thing about how people who don't receive the word are condemned. World right. are condemned already. Right. So and and the same thing in John chapter. 12 we saw that and to me as i've said before when we looked at john chapter 3 and we looked at john chapter 12 i think that is the that is sort of a, a result of the fact that the the community that is that is uh, that this gospel is coming from and is and is being written for mm-hmm. is in conflict with the synagogue and so their their boundaries are very rigid but i also uh, you know and so i i, I think that's kind of what's going on here. And, and you see this theology in John's gospel um, that Jesus' message and ministry is intended to bring eternal life, but for those who refuse to believe, it results in condemnation. And there is a logic to that, but that is, I would say that theology is characteristic of the Johannine editors, and even the Johannine right. literature, First John, you see a similar kind of thing right. in First John. I, I, guess, I guess there's a couple things going through my mind, because this, these editors are, are slapping me in the face, because I want to think that it's purer than, that John's writing's purer than the editors mm-hmm. that came to it, and so how did the editors... Uh, did they add things then to what John actually wrote? And how do we know this? Well, and there's a lot going on in my mind here. It's kind of like we talked about last year when we looked at, uh, you know, the issue of the kingdom of God, for example. Right. It gets translated into an eternal life. So what they're doing is they're trying to make the gospel tradition relevant for the, the community and to meet the felt needs of their community. And for whatever reason, again, as I said, probably part of it is the threat due to the synagogue, that the, the, the threat that the synagogue posed to this fledgling Christian community mm-hmm. that was, you know, in a very tenuous position. Um, you know, they, they resorted to um, some ideas that I think took Jesus' message into places that he did not go. Okay. Uh, um, oh, that, well, that makes sense. Well, I think I'm, also, I think also that, um, you know, um, uh, part of this has to do with the fact that the Jewish world had been influenced by apocalyptic thinking for a couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. And in, in that apocalyptic theology, there was this, you know, all or nothing kind of thinking. And there was this, you're either in or yeah. out, you're either a yeah. son of light or a son of darkness. You're either, you know, you're either a believer or you're condemned. And I think that had an influence on this particular group. Let me ask this in terms of broader thinking, because 
and I may be way out there, but I'm also hearing things like maybe of Manichaeanism or Zoroastrianism. Are these things impacting? I don't know that Zoroastrianism directly because Zoroastrianism impacted the Jewish faith earlier, you know, several hundred years earlier. Uh, And Manichaeanism, I think, grew out of this, you know, in terms of being a little bit later. To what extent? I mean, I guess those ideas have those ideas impact themselves. As I said, maybe that's the question you just answered, but that they've been. I think Manichaeanism has been impacted by the theology of the Johannine editors more so. More so that way than this way. It's okay. So, you know, the the idea is that Jesus' message and ministry is intended to bring life, but those, for those who refuse to believe, it results in condemnation. And, and, you know, the logic then is that Jesus himself does not condemn, but rather it's the fact of Jesus' presence that presents the crisis so that his message and his life judge in a way those who reject the offer of light and life but again i would as i said i would insist that this reflects the perspective of the of the editors Mm -hmm. and our authors of the final version and it it reflects the setting of the community Mm -hmm. in conflict but i think it we, we also have to remember as we talked about before when we looked at this there really is a danger of assuming that we know someone's character and destiny based on their present faith or lack thereof. And I think yeah, that was something yeah. that I would think that was something that the, the, the editors and uh, of the final edition, it's the, we're talking about the, we of John 21, right. 24, well, okay. you know, okay. yeah, this I is think the beloved disciple. Helpful. And we know that his testimony is true. These are the people who put the, the gospel in its final form. And, and um, I think they have, they have not simply, passed along tradition. I think they have significantly interpreted tradition because they're, they're trying, it's just like we do on Sunday morning. Right. You know, we're trying to interpret right. a document or documents that were written hundreds of years ago in a right. very different time or place for the needs of right. our community. And I think they were doing the same thing. So as I'm thinking about this, because we know John is, is written later, mm-hmm. right? So this might reflect that kind of later authorship, if you will, that this it's impacted by these editors at the time. Right, right. Am I in the right track yeah, here? Yeah, well, and so, you know, again, you know, we'll come back to this, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't hear the voice of Jesus in John's gospel. I'm not saying you can't hear the voice of John, whoever John was. You know, I, I think you have, I think what you have in the fourth gospel is a come, it's, 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 it's an amalgamation. It's been, it's a tapestry that's been woven from wow. the teachings of Jesus, from the testimony of the beloved disciple, and from the we who put that testimony in its final form. So going up to that question earlier, when we're talking about the question that was not really answered, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you would reveal yourself to us and not to the world? I the- think this was. I think this reflects the, the thinking of the editors. This reflects a problem, a question that the community... Um, of of the from which the gospel came and to which it was addressed uh, was concerned with. Interesting. Yeah. This is where <laughs> I don't is, see that being reflective of Jesus' ministry. The, yeah, the, the question no, that I goes mean, back this, to Jesus. But ministry. this is so this is so fascinating. But it reminds me when you think about you know you think about the situation of life in Jesus' ministry. You then you have to think about the situation in life of the church. Right. You know, in the context in right. which the gospel was written, from which it came, and to which it was right. written. Uh, it's hard for me to see Jesus dealing with that issue. What what I love, and this is a, again a very much an aside. When I first became a pastor and I decided to work through a, a college Bible study, and I thought I'm going to jump into John, and I talked to a, <laughs> I talked to a, a, a more senior um, pastor friend, and he said, "Oh, 
don't start with John because yeah. it can lend itself to such misinterpretation yes. and, um, you know, suggested that Mark would be a much better choice mm -hmm. for a new pastor. Much more straightforward. Yeah. And, and here I think uh, we could do that as well. All four gospels have interpretation woven into their, ver their yes, story of Jesus, right? right? Yeah. All four gospels do. Absolutely. But I think you just see it more. And, and, it's, and it stands out a little more with John's gospel. Yeah. Yeah. So this yeah. is actually really helpful, but I hope it's helpful for you too. Yes, indeed. <laughs> for our listeners. All right. Moving on then. The next verse. So the next verse shifts gears again. Again, which in my mind argues that the final form of this discourse as it has come to us comes from the hand of the authors or editors of the final version of the fourth gospel. And so the gospel says, I have said these things to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will remind you of all that I, I, I have said to you. And so, you know, we go from, we go from, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world, to those who love me will keep my word and my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home to them, to um, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, but the word that you hear is not mine, but it's from my Father. To I have said these things to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, with whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all the, everything, all that I've right, said to you. Right. It just seems very disjointed to me. Uh, well, it definitely seems disjointed to me, although I do like that it kind of, kind of fights itself out to this very comforting, oh, all that goop, <laughs> goopiness up there, and this kind of clarity comes with the Holy Spirit to me. Well, what I would say is this, you know, there's some themes in the farewell discourse that are prominent. Um, I think they, I think they reflect Jesus' teaching, but I think I think also that the the witness of John and the and the and the um, the final editorial perspective of the we of John twenty one twenty four um, has has been responsible for putting this all together into the form that we have it, and these themes get repeated. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I, I think what's happening here is that there's you know John fourteen is kind of you know John thirteen begins with the story of the supper and mm -hmm. then the command to love based on the foot washing. John fourteen then begins to introduce the proper the the farewell discourse proper in preparing them for his departure. Right. right. John fifteen really seems to kind of pull it all together. John fifteen and sixteen, but these these themes then all the themes that we're looking at in John 14 are going to come up again and again in John 15 and 16 mm -hmm. and and get get more clarity okay and so I think what's happening here is that that uh, the editors of the final form of the gospel are wanting to put a lot of these themes together oh, into this sure. into this in, sort sense. of introductory section just to begin to get things on the table okay uh, the themes that are going to be treated here are, are, are on okay. the table here that's fair yeah. that's fair now, the gospel then speaks of, of the coming of the Spirit to be the parakletos or the advocate, as the new RSV updated edition translates it, or perhaps better, a helper, encourager, mediator for the disciples. And that's the translation of Lo and Nida in their Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament according to semantic domains. Now, this theme is, is only found in this farewell discourse mm -hmm. of John's gospel. Which you know, it's kind of interesting because we, you hear so much emphasis on the spirit as the paraclete or as the mm -hmm. advocate or helper. You'd think that it was a it was all over the New right, Testament, right. and it's no, only it's found not, yeah. here in John fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. So the primary work then of the Spirit of Truth here is to teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. And the idea later in the farewell discourse seems to be that the primary work of the Spirit is to guide the disciples into all truth, including apparently not only the truth of what Jesus taught, 
but also, and this is important, the truth of what Jesus will continue mm-hmm. to teach them. And this is something that's unique to John's gospel. And I think I think that the editors of John's gospel would, are, would sort of invoke that for their interpretation of John of John's witness and of Jesus' teachings, mm-hmm. because um, you know there is this sense in which they are led to to speak somewhat prophetically in Jesus' name. Uh, we we think of the prophets as ending with Malachi. That's mm-hmm. sort of a right. traditional assumption. Right. But there were Christian prophets. Uh, Paul refers to them. They're referred to in the Book of Acts, and right. and. So, you know, we even have what's called an agraphon of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's reported in the book of Acts. Paul is the one who recounts it. It's, it's called an agraphon because it's not written. That's what agraphon means. It's not written anywhere in our canonical gospels. And so I think what you have is you have this, this Christian prophecy that continues to speak in the name of Jesus. And perhaps the editors of John's gospel saw themselves as standing in this tradition. So they would not have hesitated to, to, to believe that what they were saying, you know, how they were, how they were interpreting the, the gospel tradition and the testimony of the beloved disciple was a true word of Jesus to this community. Mm-hmm. Again, I would say that the primary concern here is to assure them they will not be left to carry out their task based on their own abilities, they will have help. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, as you said, this is a lot that goes on here to think about this role of the spirit, right? Yeah. And, and um, to introduce the spirit and, 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 and in this particular, particular way. And um, that it's so unique here, but yet it's so part of the tradition. Sure. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So what happens next? Well, again, the theme shifts. <laughs> <laughs> we right. go to another theme. Uh, the next verse is verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It does seem disjointed, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. 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 I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. Yeah. You know, when you read this assuming, well, this is just all something Jesus said, your mind tends to want to make it flow a little more you know, like it, like it's, like it's just natural. But when you go back and you re- you think of it as maybe, maybe this is something that was put together in this way by the editors of the final form of the gospel. You begin to notice, oh, this, <laughs> this it's is really, really a disjointed it's really, passage. Really awkward, uh, but yet this is probably my favorite verse in the Bible. And well, so, of course, and yeah. for many, for so many people, um, it's such a comforting space. Well, and I think that's the whole purpose, right? Right. Is that, again, the intent here is to comfort the disciples regarding Mm -hmm. Jesus' impending departure. And the fourth gospel encourages them not to be afraid, not only because the helper would come to them, but also because Jesus would leave what he calls my peace with them. Mm -hmm. And I think the context suggests that the promise of his presence to comfort and encourage them in their work is his peace. He's promising his peace that his peace will be with them. He's promising that right. I will be with you. I will be with you. To help right. you uh, and, and in, in your work after this departure. Um, it, you know, I, um, I was telling Alan before we started that um, this idea of, of, of peace and um, wholeness is, um, is part of our wholeness, that, that being at peace. And then I'm looking at the notes he provides, and there's this wonderful discussion of, of the word peace. And so I think maybe you could tell yeah. us about this. Yeah, well, and this is important too, because uh, one of the things, one of the challenges we have with John's gospel is what we're going we're gonna to talk about, what's called realized eschatology. And the point of that is we already have 
the fullness of eternal life here and now. Right. We have the fullness of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ here and now. We there's you know there, nothing that comes in the future will be greater than what we have now. Mm-hmm. That's not the eschatology. That's not the hope that is presented in the Bible. Right. There is definitely a something more to come. And in the Hebrew Bible, peace is one of those main ideas of what is to come uh that this is what happens when um um people know god genuinely and live the way god intended for us to live Mm -hmm. and it's it's a salvation word in the hebrew bible Mm -hmm. peace is a salvation word in the hebrew bible that's something that's important too and i don't know that everybody really catches that especially in the psalms peace is a salvation world word also in isaiah um, and peace is what happens when God's unfailing love, which mm-hmm. we know as hesed or his right. covenant love, when God's faithfulness and when God's righteousness, which could also be translated God's acts of saving justice, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. define the way people live. Right, right. So that's what happens when peace ha- peace comes when all that happens, when right. God's love, when God's faithfulness, when God's righteousness defines the way people live. And each of these words, peace, peace, Unfailing love, faithfulness, right. righteousness, they're loaded with meaning and all relate directly right. to the concept of salvation in the Hebrew Bible. And so the idea then is that salvation in terms of peace, justice, unfailing love, and righteousness happens when God's will is done on earth right. as it is in heaven. Right. This points us to a future hope. Right. And and this is not only the, the idea of of the Psalms and the prophets, this is the idea of the New Testament, that there is a right. future hope. There is something yet to come. Right. And I, what I love and what you describe there is just really the, the, the thickness of this word, mm-hmm. this, this, and, and that's what I, th- I think. And I think sometimes, um, I think sometimes we tend to skip over peace as one of many instead of in its wholeness that it really is. Mm-hmm. And of course this is, it's a major concept. This is, you know, this, this is what caught my eye, um, for actually this scripture. And so I was kind of, I was kind of, pleasantly surprised that he had this note on here, but I, I think that's helpful for all of us because I think we do tend to skimpy on peace. <laughs> well, we see, we see peace as temporal. Exactly. We see peace as not related war. to, right, <laughs> right not war, know. right, not conflict, not right, conflict, right. but peace is a much bigger term. Yeah, it yeah, relates it, to the wholeness of salvation. Exactly. It relates to all that God is doing to set things right yes, in this world. Yes, so yeah. it's really, really awesome. Yeah. Um, and so then we, we keep going on. What what comes next? So then Jesus um, addresses the disciples' concerns about his departure again. This is reflected in the following statements. Uh, you heard me say to you, you, I am going away and I am coming to you. If you loved me, mm-hmm. note, note, if you loved me. If you loved me. <laughs> I, I find that just, I have to just chuckle at that because he's talking to his disciples, right? Right. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs so that when it does occur, you may believe. And so I think the reason then for the appeal to the disciples to rejoice mm-hmm. that Jesus was going to the Father was because the Father is greater than I. And I would say that in the context of John's gospel, this is another way for Jesus to say, because I am carrying out God's will. I am doing what the Father is is asking me to do. I think that's what the reformers say there basically too, maybe not so eloquently, but but that's how they would view that. And uh, I I think this this interesting piece on, you would rejoice, but when you think about 
what you know what we've seen before before with with you know with even with peter and saying get behind me satan you you aren't getting it right and and that i that i have to go on and so that is an interesting it's a response of a very human response to death instead of a a very um um bigger view of right. god's kingdom right. yeah yeah right. yeah 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 right. cool, cool stuff yeah yeah. So yeah, the, and and in the Greek, it's a it's a it's a second class conditional sentence. It's a contrary to fact condition, and which is un, which is really strange because huh. why why would Jesus put it that way? You know that that if you loved me, you would rejoice. And I think this is where we we need to recognize we can't push Greek grammar based on the form only because we have to think and take into consideration what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Jesus is talking to his disciples. In the next chapter, he's going to say, I no longer call you my servants. I call you friends. Right. So, right. you know, you have to take the whole context and the whole situation into context. Right. This is called the pragmatics of the text. This is a linguistic concept where you understand the situation. Jesus is talking to his faithful disciples, the, one who, the ones whom he's going to say, you truly do abide in me and you're going to bear fruit. He's he's not thinking of them as, well, you might be believers or you might not be. Right, right, So right. we really shouldn't press the fact that this is a contrary to fact condition yeah, because he, okay, yeah. uh, obviously Jesus assumes that they love him. Right, right. <laughs> I, yeah, my mind just goes, is, is it... A- and again, I'm going too far, but is, is it just pressing that difference between our kind of human ideas of love and this, this deeper love? I and, don't think so. See, I'm going too far. I don't think so. But, and, and watch this, friends. I'm going too far, and this is where Alan's so good, because it's so easy for us to do that, as he pointed out. Well, and I, I you know, I, to me, I think what I, what I found is that there's some things that, that Jesus says, there's some things that are, that are said by the writers of the, new, of the Bible that I don't think they really mean the mean the words literally. I think they're said for sort of a shock value, mm. and that might be what's going on yeah, here. Jesus be. is trying to say, "Hey, hey, guys, you know, right. you know, catch on here. This is something important. I it's it is essential that I fulfill my Father's will completely, and that means I have to leave. Yeah, and yeah. and 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 that's something you should be happy about. Yeah, that I'm fulfilling God's yeah. will. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So actually, that is the end right there of the Revised Common Lectionary. Right. That is the end of our passage in the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, I will say, however, that there are a couple of verses that follow, and they are so strange. They seem to disrupt the whole tenor of what we've been talking about. I Mm -hmm. think it's important for us to at least discuss them because I guarantee you somebody out there, one of you guys that's listening to us, someone from your church is going to come up to you and ask, why didn't you preach on these verses? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you think about them? So we're going to try to help you out here. Now, Verse 20, verses 30 and 31, then Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I do as the father has commanded so that the world may know that the, I love the father. You know, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, I have to be careful of what I say because the ruler of this world is coming. And yet that statement is immediately followed by the denial that he has no power over me because I do as the father has commanded me. Now, you know, the idea that Jesus is doing what the Father has commanded him, again, we've said this is common in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. But the language related to the ruler of the world sounds just so strange to me on the lips of Jesus. And the more I study this language in John's gospel, the more I'm convinced that it reflects the editorial perspective okay. of the authors, authors and or editors of the final version of the gospel. Here, I see them being influenced by apocalyptic theology. 
Okay. And so wow. to me, it's extremely difficult to envision Jesus as talking about any ruler of the world other than God, because for one thing, the Hebrew Bible makes it clear that God is the one and only ruler over all creation. And secondly, uh, Jesus' language of the kingdom of God contradicts the notion that there is any other who rules the world than God. Right. So right. it just, it makes no sense it's theologically. Just, it's, it's, it's. And that's why that you know that's why I'm so down on apocalyptic, and that's why you know I see some apocalyptic themes in John's gospel, and I don't really see them as accurately reflecting Jesus Jesus teaching. Yeah, right, I I agree. I and, think this reflects the this perspectives makes, of the of the community. And it it does make sense when you think about the ongoings of when this is put together, right? right. And when this comes, right. it, it it's still mind boggling, and I think for many of us, it. Um, uh, for many of us, it, it, unfortunately, I'm not going to have a lot of confidence looking at this without without commentary, right? Right. Um, right. But I think that's good, and I think it's good to know this is how we can respond to to this portion. Sure. Um, yeah. Sure. So then, so then, you know, this is just one one more piece I think that reflects the idea that I'm presenting here that this whole chapter of the farewell discourse reflects the perspective of the authors or editors of the final version of John's gospel, the we of John 21, 24. And again, it is for that reason that I don't speak of this as if Jesus said, or even John said it. Mm. Um, um, I usually say it's, it's John's gospel says. Mm -hmm. And, and part of the reason for that is that separating the voice of Jesus, the voice of John, the whoever the John was, and the voice of the final authors and editors of John's gospel is extremely difficult. They're just, in, it's it's all of a piece. It's all woven together. Uh, Ernst, Ernst Hainschen probably states this a little more, the problem here, a little more sharply than I would. He says, the gospel of John as a whole is not a reproduction of the words of the historical Jesus designed to preserve them, but an interpretation, a new interpretation okay. that is based on a completely new understanding of the form and message of Jesus. Now, I don't know that I would say it quite that sharply, because in, in, in like I said, all, all of the Gospels are interpretations. They're not simply preservations of the traditional words of the historical Jesus. They are, all four Gospels are interpreting uh, the words of Jesus. Uh -huh, and so that's uh -huh. something that's just a part of it. But right, I do right, believe right. that what's going on here is that we do have a significant reinterpretation of Jesus in, God's, in John's Gospel. And I think it's important to note along those lines that many New Testament scholars see the farewell discourse as the primary witness to the realized eschatology yeah, of John's Gospel. Yeah. That is that we already have now the fullness of eternal life, and we don't have to wait for anything else. So, for example, while John 14 begins with the idea that Jesus was going to prepare a place for them in the Father's house so that they may be with him there, you know, basically talking about something other than here and now, right? Some, right. Talking about something that's out in the future. Because of their inability to understand this, the message has shifted to their present relationship with Jesus and the Father by keeping Jesus' word and by the aid of the Spirit. So the, and we see this, mm -hmm. you know, the focus is on, you know, my father will, you know, my father will love them and we will come to them and we will make a dwelling with them. You know, right, these right, kinds right, of, right, all right, the language right. of, of being enfolded into this relationship of love between Jesus right. and the father, that's all, you know, more of a, a realized eschatology. And it's something that we all, I mean, honestly, as a Christian living in this day and time, I look to that that hope of of Jesus' presence, God's presence, right. the presence of God's love in my life to sustain absolutely, me. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and and but I I I think we you know that is not all there is, and I think you know th that's part of the part of the problem here is that uh, 
You know, there's a broad segment of New Testament scholarship that recognize this, this, that John has shifted the perspective yes. on eschatology. Yes. Evangelical scholars like G.R. Beasley Murray resist this interpretation mm-hmm. and seek to integrate the witness of John's gospel into the broader witness right. of the New Testament as a whole because they're wanting to make it all, you know, consistent. Right. Although, you know, I'm, I'm inserting this, that is certainly something that at least Calvin did not try to do. Calvin, Good for him. Calvin took a separate separate take on Good so this him. is in, but i can see this temptation yeah and i guess um the the simple i mean i could see why i could see why people want to do this yeah, yeah. of course yeah. i can and i can too but it just seems to me that the plain meaning of the text seems to confirm the idea of realized eschatology right. here because jesus starts with this idea of you know i'm going to prepare a place in my father's house so that where i am you may be right. he's talking about something in the future but then it comes down to the present right you know we will you know the father and i will make a home with you you will you know have my mm-hmm. peace with you this the, the the helper will be with you um, the father will love you and and it's it's a it's a here and now right, kind of thing. Right, 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 right. And in fact, I would say that this version of the Christian hope in John's gospel of experiencing the love and presence of God the Father and, and Jesus and the Spirit here and now mm-hmm. has almost completely displaced New Testament eschatology among contemporary Christians who focus on that present experience of the risen right, Christ right. rather than the completion of salvation in the new heavens and the new earth. That's true. The, the eschatology of the New Testament is clearly on something that is yet to come. Let me ask you this. Do you think, in part, that this emerged because the prediction that the end of the world was going to come very, very soon. I mean, we saw that especially in Paul early on, that it was right around the corner. And then this is happens later and mm-hmm. hasn't happened mm-hmm. yet. And despite the fact that Rome is sacked and destroyed, the earth hasn't ended yet. Yeah. I mean, is, is, this, is this because the, the reality of those living at that time discovered that they misunderstood what that that end that end times really were. I'm not sure. So so you know there, this has been a question that has been asked for for a long time, and it's called the delay of the parousia. Mm-hmm. Is it because of the delay of the return of Christ that Christians began to turn to something like this? I, I don't know that I would say that. So for example, that Paul got it wrong. Well, you know that that yeah. Paul saw it as just around the corner because to some extent, you know, it's like in the Book of Revelation. I am coming soon. Right. Well, soon is a relative term. Exactly. 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 And I think the point is, the point of New Testament eschatology and the point of the New Testament emphasis on the return of Christ is that that Christ can come any day. Right. And that we must always be prepared for that. Right. So, so you know, to say, oh, it's going to be you know way out in the future, you can just kind of relax. Yeah. That's, right. That that's defeats not, the whole purpose, right. right? Right. So, so the I think the focus of New Testament eschatology as it relates to the return of Christ is more on the eminence with the perspective of being prepared. And so, I don't think that it was that they got it wrong. It was just that as as the decades continued to pass, you know, I think what, there was a felt need among the Christians, for example, of the Johannine community, mm-hmm. for some kind of spiritual <laughs> um, right. assistance, some kind of spiritual connection that, that helped them. And Paul was already dealing with this when, his talk, right, when he was right. talking about the role of the Spirit in the Christian life. Right, it's right. not like the church wasn't dealing with this before. But I think what we see then is that, 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 that the final editors of John's Gospel take... You know, the witness of John 
to Jesus' words, and they write it into this whole understanding that we have the fullness of eternal life right now. Right. We don't okay. have to wait for anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and I understand it, and to some extent, I cherish and hold on to that hope myself because right. because I I need the encouragement that the idea of, of Jesus' presence in my life and the idea of God's right. presence and the Spirit's presence in my life right here and now gives to me. But I think we have to recognize that while I think it's true that we have that promise of God's presence and Jesus' right. presence and the Spirit's presence in our lives, that does not exhaust New Testament eschatology. I agree. There is yeah. more yet yeah. to come. Right, right. And, I, and that's, of course, what the seminary is teaching. You know, well, but, but here's the thing. I mean, I, I preach that almost, you know, I've preached that countless times. Right. And I, I dare say, you know, I've been pastor here for eight years. I, I, I really wonder if anybody in my church, maybe one or two, have heard that message well enough and understood it enough to articulate back, yeah, there's something more to come. I, because because I, we have been I, I so schooled to think that it's we've got it all now. Right. Well, no, I, I mean, I think, I think it's there. It's just that we're in a world where we're just in such a now world that, mm-hmm. that I don't think we, you know, I, when, when you think about, about death, um, even and and that we're just not even mentally prepared to deal with it, mm-hmm. um, because it's so far now. I this may have changed, right? With what's almost a million COVID deaths, which will be here by the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people will may start to just in the U.S. Vision. Right? <laughs> just oh yes, I'm sorry, just in the United States. But um, so I, maybe maybe death will be more real, and they'll start to really be thinking about that. Mm-hmm. But I just think it. I think part of it corresponds to our reality mm-hmm. right now, which, um, I mean, I think we just keep preaching it. And I, I do think it yeah. hears it. Well, I of think, course we do. I yeah. think when, I think when you hit that, ultimately hit that stress, then people will start to, to visit that, that they've been, they've been fed that this, mm-hmm. in, this, this knowledge, they just, they haven't had reason to, 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 to really work through it themselves. Well, like you say, most people are, are really focused on the now and yeah. they're not really so focused on the later. No, they're not. They just not at really all. can't, can't look past now right. to a hope of I'm making all things new in right. the right. ultimate new heavens and new earth. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So fi- final thoughts for us? Yeah. So, th- so really the intention of all of this, I think, is to offer comfort to the disciples regarding Jesus' imminent departure to the Father. Uh, the fourth gospel then offers comfort in the form of assurance regarding their relationship with him and the Father in their present situation. And that's a significant mm-hmm. development and something that we, we, va- we can value, I think. Those who follow Jesus' example of loving God by obeying him will be enfolded in the relationship of love that Jesus and the Father share, not in the future, but now. And the Spirit will come to them to guide them into all truth, to enable them to bear fruit in faithful discipleship, which will glorify the Father as well. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, Jesus will leave his peace with them, which suggests that he's promising his presence to comfort and encourage them in their work after his departure. So the whole thing really is is geared toward comforting Mm -hmm. and reassuring the disciples regarding Jesus' departure. And actually... Despite its goopiness, which is my word of the day, <laughs> it actually comes by with this kind of beautiful, comforting message, which is, is. why I think it's so preachable ultimately. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just you have to be able to wade through it, which I think Alan's it, helped it us It can through. be confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. 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 
Hi, friends. We're back. And um, since we've kind of already dealt with some application matters um, in our first segment, we kind of mixed it all together. We're going to um, have a second segment on the reformers with Christy taking the lead, and then we're going to conclude our podcast for today. So just to give you a heads up here. So Christy, tell us what, what the reformers had to say about this text. Sure, sure. And I... I spent really most of my time just looking at the, the, the narrowed passage for the Revised Common Lectionary. But the themes they come up with are themes that they're drawing from the broader passage. So it's kind of an interesting, an interesting study. But it, obviously this is really important scripture for doctrine. And it, and it is in some of the concerns of the Reformers um, and some of these that are concerns that have developed um, throughout the entire church, you know, things like such as Trinity, such as mm-hmm. um, the, the relationship between Father and Son, such as the Holy Spirit. So all these kinds of deep issues of doctrine become important for their discussion. Um, and one of the things, of course, is um, the relationship between God's love and faith. Um, God loves us first, so we might come to faith, and it is through that faith that we have obedience. Obedience. And I get this very specifically from um, it's it's an English um, an English um, analysis that comes out of the Westminster, um, and so it's a little bit later, but it's, it's it's reformed in nature, and I think that's interesting. Again, we're trying to deal with this issue is is how we are how we're acting. Are we acting out of did faith come first or do works come first? Right. That, that same kind of discussion. And even the bigger question is, is faith itself a work? And mm-hmm. that's really something they're starting to deal with. One of the Lutheran reformers um, felt that this particular scripture supported the preservation of doctrine, that faith, not action, is what is needed for salvation. <laughs> you know, after reading this passage, uh, you know, <laughs> it's hard. I have to just chuckle that he would say that because, you know, <laughs> Those who keep my word, those who love me, right? Right. But faith, not where action is what is needed for salvation. Right, right. But that's, you know, that's so, that's some, that's the core of Lutheran mm-hmm. doctrine. So they have sure. to make sense out of this. And he says that keep the word is to, not to follow the Ten Commandments, but to love God and have faith. And I, I think Jesus would say, what's the difference? <laughs> right now, of course, Luther didn't try to Luther didn't try to you know knock off the Old Testament, sure. but you can see there's a this emphasis on the New Testament, and sometimes you'll still hear that when you talk with folks that the Old Testament is indeed that, and I think we talked about this at the beginning of our podcast. It's old. There's right. this new thing happening, right. um, and uh, old as in obsolete. Old as in obsolete, yeah. even though he still thought you should study it, but. Um, so it really is, um, it's, it's a lesser book than this new, new way, this new justification by faith alone. Now, we've talked before, the Reformed tradition will look more broadly at the entirety of Scripture and note that the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. Um, adhering to the law would be a response yes, to exactly. faith. Yeah. And I like how Johannes Brenz states this, faith is the most faithful custodian Surely. of the Word of God. Surely. So I thought that was kind of beautiful. Yeah. And it's not that, it's not that, yeah. And I understand sort of almost from, from the perspective of the theological and philosophical perspective of is faith an action? Is faith a work so that your faith becomes a means of earning your salvation? Right, right. But that, I think that just takes it, it pushes it too far. I think so too. I think so too. And of course it, it works. I mean, 
when you think of Calvin's idea of total depravity, which I'll talk about more, I mean, you can't even have faith by yourself, right? Right. It's, well, I, I go back to I go back to Ephesians chapter two, you know. It is by faith that we are saved, not works, and even that is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Exactly. But then it says we are saved unto good works, which the Father has prepared for us to do, right? So right, right, right. It's right. all of a piece. Right. It's all of a piece. And I think it's, it's hard to wrap your brain around a little bit. But yes, I think when you think about who God is sure. fundamentally and, and who we are in connection with God, it all kind of falls into place. Yeah. So, and that... Again, going on with this idea of sovereignty of God, which is obviously huge for Calvin. Um, this was not actually that obvious to me when I read through this passage, <laughs> I have to be yeah. honest. But it had to do, um, as again, it has to do, like we talked about, the, whether faith was itself an act. And um, Calvin re- reminds us that um, our complete brokenness in our complete brokenness that we must be regenerated by God in order mm. to love God, that everything we do is in response to God. Um, then it further picks up, this is interesting, on a later 17th century form, folks, and this is, becomes interesting because um, we see this kind of shift to this kind of fire and brimstone kind mm. of preacher. And when we think again about the Calvinism, um, we tend to think in these terms. And when I looked at George Hutchinson, which I think many will recognize him as a Puritan pastor of the 17th century. And so he's, this is again, Calvinism, not Calvin. Um, in his world, he claims that obedience to the commandments of God is not required as a simple act of love and courtesy, but as a testimony of subjuga- subjection to divine authority. Goodness, so that it, sounds almost like a Muslim could say it. Yeah, so it really <laughs> comes off that instead of responding to God to God's love with with your faith and actions, that this is that there's this kind of harsh obedience that's that's there almost a almost a fearful obedience a fear and fear actually becomes part of the language of that piece that i read yeah uh, for him this is this this harshness about love that is bound in god's sovereignty and and as a, again this is i think this is where we get this kind of negative idea of Calvin, whereas Calvin's Calvin's writing is well, I, softer. I, I, it, it reminds me of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon. Oh, absolutely. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, to me, I just, I object to the title, an angry God, you know? Right. Wait, what, what happened, happened to, to God is love? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so I think it's important when you look at Luther, God, I mean, that's his, that's his mantra god is love you know that's mm-hmm. his that's his symbol right. the, heart. the heart we've talked about yeah. uh, but calvin calvin is still in that same mindset and sometimes we want to pull calvin into where they were in the 17th century and stay there and, and that's really not fair to calvin and i keep mm-hmm. pointing this out because i um i just think he's still so misunderstood well and i mean you know the whole idea of you know faith is a gift from god you know it, we, I, I understand what he's saying. You know, it takes an act of God. It takes the work of the Spirit in our hearts for us to even be able to respond right. in faith. You right, know, that right, makes right. sense biblically in a New Testament sense. You know, that's that. Right. I think Paul uh, addresses that. You know, exactly, exactly. So, all of this faith and and response. It, it you know what. What are our actions as believers? And the Reformed tradition in particular emphasizes that our actions are a response to faith. 
Um, but what does this mean? Does it mean that all we do is a response, all the, all the good we do is a response to faith? Does it mean that nothing in our physical world has any bearing on our life in God? <laughs> um, and this is kind of important nuance as um, Calvin holds up uh, what happens during the sacraments. Mm. So, for example, and, or I should say the Reformers. Uh, there's a big question here are then, do we do sacraments as as part of faith? Uh, or do they bring do they bring about grace in us? Or do they don't really do anything at all? Mm. And and this gets caught up also with our idea whether sacraments are indeed a means of grace, or whether indeed they should be maybe referred to as ordinances, something we do because mm-hmm. it's it's just it's just a it's practice. A it's a it's a command. Yeah. They, purely symbolic. A purely symbolic, and so it comes up in in this Reformation time, and it comes up today too because there's we have many denominations that do recognize. Um, ordinances mm-hmm. instead of sacraments and um typically in the free church tradition yeah. right so you've got this whole whole range of discussions going on in the in the reformation era mm-hmm. um and i've talked about the radicals and one group are the spiritualists and they they do impact some of the modern uh, thinkers today but they were so far they're the far side of this argument where it's like look nothing you do has any bearing in faith. That is a purely wow. internal thing. Now you're going to respond with good works out of that because that is what someone of faith does. But mm-hmm. there's no, there's, there's, doesn't have to. Yeah. Right? And I would, I think I would, I understand what they're trying to say, but I think I would push back to them and say, you know, in the biblical sense, it's all of a piece. Right, right, and no, they're they're so they're they're far on this side, and of course these were these were people that aren't going to be rec- recognized by the magisterial reformers. In mm-hmm. fact, um, theoretically, they don't have to do anything. I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting mm. problem there. Um, on the other side, right, the Roman Catholics are on the other that you have to you have to have that saving grace of that physical the medicine of immortality. Exactly. <laughs> so you've got this whole and. The Reformation has the whole spectrum of discussions going on, and I think the discussions are probably still like that today yeah. in many ways. But here, you've got this, you know, this energy going into what do the scriptures say? What am I called to do? And they've got to revisit mm-hmm. all of the arguments of the ancients to try to, you know, kind of sure. re-identify. What well, yeah, I mean I, that that whole idea, but the question, the, res, the the question between our actions and and faith is still very much real. It's, just, just think about the Lord's Supper. I mean, you know, you've got you've got a lot of people in in the Catholic tradition who probably have this almost mechanistic view that as long as they're fessed up, as long as they get their mm-hmm. their um, you know body of Christ on a regular basis, then they're 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 good. They're, good, they're in a state right? of grace. Yep. You know that that it is it is though it is those practices and especially the the you know the presence of 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 Christ's body in the mm-hmm. elements of the sacrament that actually conveys grace to them right, and, right. And, and saves them. And, and then you've got, you know, the people on the other side of the, on the other extreme who, who will say, you know, no, we're just doing this to memorialize Jesus. It doesn't have any real significance at all for our, right. for our salvation. Exactly. Exactly. And there would be some <laughs> traditions that wouldn't do it at all. Yeah. You know, they would. Right. And, and that's interesting as well. Well, and I mean, some traditions that don't even have any kind of formal, 
structure to right. what they do. I mean, I'm right. thinking about the silent Quakers, you know, they, exactly. they just simply gather and exactly. It's all very internal. And mm-hmm. so this is really interesting. And of course, within this, con- within this conversation are, um, is the role of the word of God. And so let me, let me move on. Um, this passage deals a lot with the Holy Spirit. We talked about that. And mm-hmm. what does the Spirit do? I mean, how does the Spirit work? And obviously, the spiritualists claim this is something that happens within, mm-hmm. right? This doesn't even impact anything, anything that we do. But what is Scripture? Is it something God does or something we do? I mean, we have to read and share Scripture so there's this physical act that goes on with it, and what does that mean? And and also the preaching on it, right? And of course, in our tradition, we usually say a prayer about that that we're that we're conveying how the Holy Spirit's working through us mm-hmm. to interpret this passage. And I I truly believe that, and I'm sure yes. Alan does too. Oh, I mean, I can't believe how often. Um, well, when I worked with Alan, or when I work with. Um, my my senior pastor now how often that i feel like we're on the same page as i'm writing prayers to a company without ever having a conversation about the scripture but mm-hmm. the holy spirit's working in us to provide something that is sure and it's not just like interpretation i mean i really feel that it's it's um it's very much spirit led right yes. um but anyway, it's kind of interesting then how does this work within the scripture? So one one reformer, this is an Anglican guy, so he's going to be impacted by both reformed and Lutheran guys. Um, he said, the spirit teaches only things that, consonant to the scripture and thereby is discerned from a spirit of delusion. <laughs> the, uh, you can you can almost hear him pushing back against the spiritualists there. Uh, it, <laughs> you know, exactly. That, that like, the scripture is is the measure of what the spirit is truly going to be exactly. saying. Exactly. Yeah. Likewise, Martin Bootser <clears throat> acknowledges that the true understanding of scripture is understand through the spirit. Um for the Reformed tradition, this is not a new revelation, but rather mm-hmm. for fulfillment of the scriptures. In other words, for the mainline Reformers, the Old Testament is very important. It is scripture itself. The problem is, of course, is the idea that the Holy Spirit would lead people to the incorrect inter- interpretation of scriptures, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, and that, that's, I mean, you know, that's, that's something that's very much an assumption among Re- Reformation era uh, and even before this, uh, in Christian uh, biblical interpretation, you know, that was one of the time, time-honored principles of, of hermeneutics was that you rely on the Spirit right, to, right. to help exactly. you interpret. But if that's the case, then why are there so many different interpretations? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so early Melanchthon seems to believe that those who assent to the gospel will interpret it correctly. And he quotes John 6, I guess 45. if you interpret it incorrectly, you're not really uh, exactly the they will be taught by god but but they all learn is that the holy spirit does not really lead people to the same conclusions about yeah. scripture and so they after that suggest the interpretation should be guided with someone with more experience well and this is where you know again when i taught when i taught hermeneutics you know most um, of the major Bible biblical interpreters, even Augustine, you know, going back to the fathers, or whether we're talking about Luther or Calvin, you know, or or even modern days, you know, th- there are there are. It's not just that there's one or two principles of biblical interpretation; it's several, right, right, and right, and they're all 
combined, you know, and, and one of them is that you rely on the spirit, but one of them is that, you know, we, we, we call it the rule of love. Anything that right. leads you uh, to something that's other than love for God or love for others, you've missed it, you've, right? You've missed it, right, exactly. <laughs> or, or the rule of faith, right? right. If, 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 if your interpretation leads you to contradict, you know, the, the basic essentials of the Christian faith, you know, right. as they have been articulated throughout history, you know, that's something you should be, con- you should you be should careful be about. careful about. Exactly. And that there's these spaces. And so, you know, in terms of the Reformation tradition, what you got was Luther, for example, pressing for vernacular translations so people could get a hold of the scriptures. And as they started to go off and do wild things and interpret themselves (laughs) and often, often without the background or taking things out of context, then he backed up and that's when you started to get the catechisms. So, Mm -hmm. and this happens really quite early, um, in, in the Reformation process, actually. And what really got Luther was um, the uh, peasants uprising of 1525, mm-hmm. um, which, not that there hadn't been peasant uprisings before, but then when the peasants get a hold of Scripture and start yeah. using bits of Scripture to justify their actions, um, that was kind of a... I have to make sure I have more guidance over this. The yes. peasants do not have the background to be interpreting scripture. So, um, and well, and you know, you've got this whole tension within the Reformed tradition of the priesthood of every believer or priesthood of all the believers. Really, it's not right. the priesthood of every believer. People think of it that way. It's the priesthood of all believers, right? right. Which which means that we interpret the scripture together, not just individually, yes. right? Yes, I, and, I think so. And and a lot of people take it as the priesthood of every believer and they go off on their own tangents but you know it's you know biblical interpretation is essentially something that we have all that that we must always do and and have always done in the context of of a of a community Mm -hmm. of faith right and and to, to me you know going back and looking at what the reformers are saying or going back and looking at you know modern commentaries that is interpreting the scripture in a community right, right? because exactly. you're not just exactly you're not just it's right. not just well this is the this is the interpretation according to reverend dr allen brame you know, right whatever. exactly exactly now interestingly enough even though you might be surprised they also commented on this and how this would impact baptism but but no surprise when we're talking about sacraments as a whole. And so I had to come pick out this fun Anabaptist guy named Pilgrim Marpeck. Are you familiar with Pilgrim Marpeck? I am, of course. I had my Baptist history class in in seminary. I'm sure Alan's heard of this guy. (laughs) Of course I have. uh, Yeah, and he uh, claimed that part of our response to faith should be in the practice of baptism as the baptism is an outward action of our faith. Mm. And his position is more of a spiritual position where the work of the Holy Spirit is really an Mm -hmm. internal transformation. And he claims that the external practices do not convey (laughs) grace or he's like, yep, or enact faith. And you can hear this in that Baptist tradition. Uh, Oh, I mean, yeah, this is, this is good Baptist theology, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I'm in the Presbyterian Church and not in the Baptist world. Right. <laughs> but what's important for us here is to understand the depths and nuances of the debate yeah. about God working in us and how um, these Reformation figures are reading the Bible through these different lenses. Sure, um, sure. And uh, in, the, in, 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 in his world, baptism does not in itself fairly mark the community of Christ, which is an internal experience. Um, and I point this out. Mm help to help us understand. Well, and I understand that, you know, because they 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 emphasized, you know, a genuine 
conversion experience on the part of the individual. Mm -hmm. But my question was always, well, you know, what, what sense do we make then out of those who love me will keep my word? You mm -hmm. know? Right, right. <laughs> what sense do we make out of this whole notion of bearing fruit, you know, and, right, and, right, and right. faithful discipleship? And, and, you know, just, there's just so much of that in the New Testament because it's all of a piece. You know, your faith and the way you live your life, right, right. you know, your love for God, your love for others, it's all of a piece. You can't right. separate your internal experience of some spiritual conversion with the way that affects the how you live your life. Right, In right. In biblical terms, you can't anyway. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's. Um, I mean, I, I, I love this. I love that there's this huge, this, this huge dialogue that goes on in this era and, and, and there's, there's so many and, and how they come at and how they come. And I, and, and yet I kind of love how they go back and they look back at the early church and they look back at the mm -hmm. early faith and tradition. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's so rich. It really yeah. is so rich. And I, I think there's a tendency right now in, 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 in biblical studies, not, not from, not from kind of erudite scholars, but just kind of, kind of, practicing Christians if we just need to go back to the Bible mm -hmm. without with taking out this whole rich series of discussions that not only were happened with the church fathers not only happened with John and and writing the, the scripture but also in the Reformation era and beyond mm -hmm. which which really give us an idea that that a lot of these ideas have been worked through and and built upon and then of course with modern theologians adding on top of it well and you know mo I think a lot of back to the Bible people, it's interesting because, you know, there is Baptist, the study of church history in the Baptist circles is very robust. Yeah. And, and I would say they do a good job of it, you know, but at the same time, you know, so, so you have this ability to look at the way in which the circumstances affected the interpretations of the church going throughout history but then you get to the bible and it's like it's in the, it's in its own little special bubble mm -hmm. and you don't get to look at for example how um the the situation of john's community and perhaps the way the editors of the final mm -hmm. version were trying to address that affects the content of john's gospel right. that's off limits you can't go you there you can't go there right yeah. because it's just back to the bible right right exactly <laughs> exactly and but there and there's problems with that absolutely right? because then you have no means to deal with clear contradictions well, of scripture I mean, itself. And, and unfortunately then your theology becomes goopy right to use yeah. your word of the day yeah my good word of the day right <laughs> uh, you know there's no way to deal with with um obvious yeah, obvious obvious problems, problems in the, passage. in the passages yeah, or, exactly. or places where there's obvious contradiction yeah. in the texts, and and that is a problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I I liked my I actually cut this out if you want. I actually liked my my professor. He talked about um, inerrancy versus infallibility, and mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting interesting division. Um, well, and you know, I got, I, I got to the place where I would use the term sufficiency of scripture. I like that even because, better. Because that's the language of, of, of first Timothy, second Timothy, I forget which one it is. You know, it's, it's sufficient for, 
um, rebuke, instruction, training, and righteousness, you know, right. so that oh, yes. we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I, that is, that is so, even better. Yeah. Yeah, that's even because, better. Because, you know, with inerrancy, it has to do with the content of Scripture itself. It will not err, at least in the original manuscripts, which we don't have, right? So right. it's a theoretical right. doctrine. Infallibility says it will not lead you astray. Well, all you have to do is look at church history well, to see true. how many people that's have been, have been yeah. taken off. That's you know, true. they've taken a, a Bible verse or have taken the Bible Bible and gone off on a, on a crazy tangent. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. Yeah. So no, this is much better. So And, and sufficiency also, I think, pu- puts it back to within a context of, you know, other principles of interpretation where you bring in, you know, you're interpreting the, the Bible, not just on your own, but in, in a community. Uh, yeah, that makes where, sense. Where, that's you know, you've that's got, much better. You've got, you've got the catechisms, you've got the, the rule of faith, you've got the rule of love, you've got, you know, the, the teaching of Christ is taking precedence, you know, historical and literary context. All of those principles are brought into oh, play. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's that's good. I, that is very helpful. So I'm going to jump to, obviously, the Reformers' um, comment on the peace of Christ, yeah. because I think... I think this was a really wonderful way to end today's Reformation discussion, which um, this peace, for them, the peace given by Christ means that we are reconciled to God. And this is different from the world's peace. We talked about this earlier, as it is pure, and world's peace is impacted by human sin, even, even, you know, and we talked about maybe just not war. Um, And they, of course, tie this directly to not being troubled, that next portion in there, um, do not be troubled. Right. if you are in Christ's peace, you should not be. You should not be troubled. You know, from a human standpoint, from just a a, an, a standpoint of the experiencing the human life, we're all troubled yes, by things. That's true. That's true. And I don't think I don't think Christ's peace is some sort of magic elixir that is just going to make all trouble go away. Well, I don't it, think it, we can ever attain it here. I mean, I, well, I, I would say I would say. I would say we do have Christ's presence to sustain us. We do have the presence of the Spirit. Right. We do have the presence of the Father's love. But, you know, it's 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 not going to make the trouble go away. It's it's just going to help us. Right. It's, it's going to sustain us through the trouble. Right, right, and, right, And right. so I would hate, I mean, I understand what they're saying in terms of, you know, they're talking more almost in terms of absolute terms. You know, we're right. reconciled with God, and so right. if we have this peace, then we shouldn't be troubled by, by life. We shouldn't be troubled by right. doubt. Well, okay, it's nice to say shouldn't, yeah. but we are. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I guess I didn't take it that way as much as as this kind of as as those troubles come up over you and you're reminded of, of this peace. It, it can be such a calming presence. Surely, you know, I don't think it removes it, but it reminds you of of that perfection that is in Christ, and that mm-hmm. that you know that that what's next to come, right? Right, what's to come? Right, yeah, sure. Um, but I, I wanted to read this from from Luther's sermon. I think because one, uh, so we often hear of Luther who is who is being pretty salty and is saying his various mm-hmm. colorful things. But also, um, as I was thinking about the fire and brimstone style um, sermons that became so popular just a century later, I wanted to go back into some of the beautiful things that the reformers could say. And so this is. Um, this is this is part of something in, in, in a translation, part of what Luther says. 
we can rejoice and say, just as the apostles themselves heard this message from the Lord Christ's own lips personally and in his presence, so we have retained it through the apostles and their successors and our forefathers who preached this same message, which was delivered to them and which they themselves received from Christ in order that we might have the same grace love, and joy that Christ here promises to leave to and give his disciples. To be sure, he did depart from them physically so that he is no longer visible, but he left his peace behind to all Christendom. Where? Nowhere else than in his baptism, in the sacrament, and in the office of the ministry. Mm, That's nice. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.